This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So now we're going to transition a little bit and go into high altitude illness, which is, a, which is another really cool thing to take care of from a physician standpoint, from my standpoint. And it really was good for my, for my very nice spot in Denver because... In Denver, you're at 5,000 feet, right? You're not really dealing with high altitude nose. We all, I mean, you can, you feel not so good, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But you're not dealing with really significant high altitude illness at 5,000 feet. And in fact, coming down to 5,000 feet is sometimes a cure for it. And oftentimes, what I would get is these panic calls from these clinics that were up at 12,000, 14,000 feet. And they say, I've got this patient that's dying on me, and I need to send them to you. And I said, send them. And then by the time they get down to me, they're smiling, happy, and they want to go home. And I've literally sometimes discharged patients from the emergency department that were probably on death's door. But that's how effective the descent can be, even to some place like Denver. And so I was, although I would do some, I did a few shifts up in, in high altitude areas in some of the clinics that we ran, almost all of my shifts were down in Denver. So by the time they got to me, they're almost always better. And then I could be the hero. Usually in the emergency department, we're not the hero. They, they get to be upstairs. But this is the one time when they, by the time they saw me, and now they're, they're starting to get it again. They re, they're remembering things, and they look at me, and they say, wow, I feel better. It must be you. So I take the credit for it. You know? <laughs> and it, they were that much better when they got to me. So high altitude illness. Um, we're going to talk about getting high, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is about getting high. Um, but now we're talking about getting high in a different way. Uh, and so once again, we're going to kind of prioritize or categorize where we are in altitude. And there's low altitude, which is 5,000 to 8,000 feet. And I think people know, but generally when you get in an airplane and it's pressurized, People know it's about the equivalent of about 5,000 feet. So, I, you know, in Denver, I was good because I, I was always at 5,000 feet anyway. I get in a plane, I feel about the same. But that's about where you're pressurized to. So there's low high, which is about 5,000, 8,000 feet. There's high altitude, which really is talking 8,000 feet is where we start to see more significant illness begin. And to 14,000 feet, there's very high, about 14,000 feet. And then there's extreme high, ridiculously high, absurdly high, bad decision high, however you want to do it, at above 18,000 feet. Um, and what I want to make a point is that and it's not necessarily how high you get, but where your sleeping altitude is may be the, a, a very significant factor in whether or not you develop, and then if you do develop, how your altitude illness is managed. So think about that also. What I would do is, when I was in Denver, we had a place up in Breckenridge, and Breckenridge, I was at 10,000 feet. And any time my parents lived at sea level, I brought them in. They always slept in Denver the night before we went up to Breckenridge. And one time I made the mistake of bringing them straight up, and it was, they still to this day, and this was almost 15 years ago, make me remember this, because they, they were awful. I mean, they felt horrible. And it ruined our whole week, and we had to bring them down and that stuff, so I never made that mistake again. And it's that sleeping altitude. So think about that also. If you or somebody you know is going to altitude. All right, so the pathophysiology here is actually pretty straightforward. Now, we hear that there's not oxygen at altitude, right? You all heard that. In fact, there's plenty of oxygen at altitude, you just can't use it. Because it's the partial pressure of oxygen that allows us to use the oxygen. And so I know it feels like a trivial point, because I don't care how much oxygen there is if I can't use it, and it's true, but in fact, what we need to figure out is how best to use the oxygen, and, in, and it's the lack of oxygen availability that is creating this pathophysiology. This is what's going wrong. 
So once again, the body senses this before anybody else, we as medical providers or even you sense it. The body senses it and says, something's wrong. I'm not getting enough oxygen. So I need to adjust and make it so that I'm getting oxygen to the tissues that I want to get oxygen. And so when it detects this relative hypoxia, which is the core problem that's going on at high altitude, then it, modulated by the carotid bodies again, they sense this, they send out signals. In this case, it's to the respiratory center in the medulla, in the brain, to say, you increase your ventilation. So this happens even without you realizing it, is your respiratory rate's going up, and you're developing a respiratory alkalosis because your respiratory rate's going up, and that, in part, also, along with what the carotid body is signaling, is going to cause renal excretion of bicarbonate to try to compensate for this and maintain a normal pH. And this process of this relative hypoxia is what's going to cause all the problems that we're going to deal with at altitude. So hypoxemia also alters fluid homeostasis, so homeostasis. So our bodies, again, as we talked about, homeostasis for temperature, homeostasis for fluid. And it's monitoring that all the time. This is going to change that, and the hypoxia is going to result in our fluid retention, which in turn suppresses antidiuretic hormone and aldosterone, which causes a diuresis. So if any of you have been up at altitude and you've had to pee a lot more, that makes sense. This is what's happening. It's part of the response that your body is having to the altitude. And also increases our pulmonary artery pressure, which adds to pulmonary hypertension, and that is exacerbated by exercise. So here's where we get into problems, is back to our decision-making issue, is when we make the decision to go up to altitude and rigorously exercise right away, we are making a bad decision. The body can't adapt even, even if, and maybe particularly if, you're in really good shape. So guess who's at high risk for the worst altitude injuries? It's the well-conditioned young athlete who goes up there and says, and unfortunately, more male than female, and that may be in, in terms of decision-making issues, but that's a different subject. But they go up there and they say, you know what? I'm in shape. I ran a marathon last week. I can go up to 18,000 feet or even 14,000 feet and do what I did down at 1,000 feet. In fact, that shows what I, how really good a condition I'm in. And that's not how it works. And the pathophysiology of the, the, the body that responds to altitude makes those, those folks at the highest risk for the worst possible thing that can happen at altitude, which is HAPE and death. HAPE is high altitude pulmonary edema. HAPE. All right. So the key word for altitude is going to be to acclimate and in order to acclimatize to high altitude, we need time. This cannot be rushed. And that's the mistake that we get into is we want to get up there to altitude quickly. And then when we get up to altitude, we want to do the fun things at altitude, ski or all the variety of different activities we can do at altitude. And in Colorado, we had 57 peaks that go over 14,000 feet, 15, 57 14ers. And they're great to get up there and, and hike on. But it's a mistake to go from sea level to 14,000 feet and try to exert yourself. It just is. And we'll talk about some of the reasons for that. But true acclimatization probably takes months, but you can start to really acclimatize in, in four to seven days. And there's a ventil ventilatory or respiratory acclimatization, 
and then there's blood response to it, so we're building our red cells. And that makes sense, right? It's detecting lower levels of oxygen, so what's one of the ways we can do that? We can increase our blood levels that will carry oxygen, and just carry more oxygen. And that makes sense. And in fact, after three months, you've truly adapted completely. But there are some athletes that will go before they're a big marathon, even at sea level, and they'll go up to altitude to train. Part of that is to, for their blood system to develop higher blood levels, carry more oxygen. And it happens. So once again, we're going to talk about alcohol. And where we would typically see this is the understandable, I'm on vacation, it's time to drink, and I'm going from sea level to altitude, and I'm going to start doing shots. And that doesn't work. It doesn't work well, and it ends badly for some people, sometimes significantly badly. And once again, we talked about the temperature. You feel warm. So that's, that's okay, even in a cold environment, even though you're actually getting cold. It also, alcohol is a respiratory depressant, which, as we talked about, you're already struggling with hypoxemia. So slowing down your breathing rate is not a good idea. In fact, the body is increasing your breathing rate. Alcohol can reverse that, making you more prone to bad things from happening. And then again, alcohol is a diuretic. We also already talked about some of the impact of high altitude on the kidneys is to diuresis already, so you're more likely to be dehydrated. And just a quick point, reversing dehydration with alcohol doesn't work either. So even though you feel like you're drinking fine, you're not. And this is just a bad decision to make early on in your altitude and or hypothermia situation. Now, I'm not saying you can't drink on vacation. I'm just saying make the right decisions and delay gratification and have that drinking binge go on after you've at least given yourself a little bit to acclimatize. Now, I would suggest, my, the physician part of me would suggest never binge, never drink that, that heavily. But if you're going to do it, at least wait and allow your body to acclimatize, acclimatize a little bit or a lot. All right, incidents. It's going to depend, and this is a big one, how fast you ascend. So, and this is one of the big reasons why Mount McKinley is such a problem, is because it's such a steep ascent. And I don't know, have any of you been on Mount McKinley? So it's pretty steep, right? It gets, you, get, you get high very quickly. And that's one of the big problems, is you, you can go from very reasonable altitude to very dangerous altitude very quickly. And the rate of ascent is probably one of the most significant factors in whether you're, you're going to experience high altitude illness. The final altitude certainly is part of it. The higher, in general, the more dangerous. Sleeping altitude is a big part of it. So once again, sleeping at 5,000 feet and then going to 14,000 feet is much better than sleeping at 10,000 feet and exerting yourself after that. So main, keep that in mind as you are talking about acclimating. And then the duration at altitude certainly has a role as well. So in terms of acute mountain sickness, which from this point on will be called AMS, and I realize the medical term AMS is often altered mental status, and so I'm going to try to distinguish that because altered mental status comes into play here. But for the purposes of this talk, we're going to talk about acute mountain sickness as being AMS. And in some places, over 14,000 feet has been described at, at up to 67% of patients. And when I describe acute mountain sickness, if you don't already recognize it, I think it'll make sense. Now, again, rapid ascent make that... Make, makes for a higher incidence of this. And if you're sleeping at 8,000 feet or higher, by itself, even if you don't exert yourself or go over 14,000 feet, the incidence is up to 22%. So again, that sleeping altitude plays a role. And HAEP, high altitude pulmonary edema, incidence probably 1% to 2% of those that have acute mountain sickness, but a very dangerous one. 
Okay, so acute mountain sickness. Risk factors are previous history of it. If you had this issue before, you do have a higher risk of having it again. Physical exertion, and that's the big one. You get young, healthy people that go up to altitude and exert themselves. Younger persons, probably for that reason, because they're more likely to make the bad decision of exerting themselves earlier. Obesity, existing lung disease, and then physical fitness is not protective. And again, I've emphasized it once, I'll do it again, is this is where people get into bad, bad trouble by having the concept that I'm in really good shape, I can handle it. It's not an issue of how well you, your physical fitness is. Okay, so symptoms. It basically is like you felt last time you had a bad cold, and certainly last time you had a hangover. You get a headache, and then headache with any of these things, any GI upset, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, weakness, dizziness, difficulty sleeping, this is acute mountain sickness. Now, obviously there's some overlap here, and if you go up and get a virus, you're going to get some of these things. Certainly a hangover, so you can, again, alcohol adds this whole concept by, am I hungover? Am I, do I have acute mountain sickness? And different, because a hangover, you just need to ride out. Acute mountain sickness, you don't necessarily, and you certainly don't want to exert yourself. Sometimes people get up and go for a run when they have a hangover, get, get the cobwebs out. Not what you want to do with acute mountain sickness. So recognize that these symptoms are indicative of some other things, but when you're at altitude, you need to think about this, particularly as it progresses. So the cause is not perfectly understood. It probably has something to do with a cerebral vasodilation that occurs in response to that hypoxemia. We talked about how the body is responding to the relative hypoxia that it's detecting, and then there's a vasogenic edema that happens, a swelling and, and a fluid release that's happening. Symptoms can happen as early as a couple hours after you've arrived at altitude, but be careful because it can also be one to two, day, two days late. And this is the other problem we get into is sometimes they, they're smart enough to go up to altitude and say, I'm gonna take this first day off, and then I'm gonna go full on that next day. And this is a great place to gradually get to a point where you want to be. You don't have to do it that first day. Because you can get symptoms of acute mountain sickness even at 8,000 feet one to two days into your stay. So diagnosis is a clinical one. Again, when you're inclined to diagnose a hangover, you might want to think about this if you're at altitude. Viral illness, vital signs are going to be normal, and clinical exam is going to be normal. And we do have to think about, I, I don't want to say that this is the thing you jump to only because there are other things that can cause this, so you want to think about that as well if you're in a position where you're taking care of these patients. But you also have to consider this because the mistake is made when we don't recognize it at this point and we send them out and say, go do what you want, and they progress, and then they can get into real trouble because there's acute mountain sickness you will recover from. High-altitude pulmonary edema and high-altitude cerebral edema, you might not. So acute mountain sickness treatment goal is going to be prevent progression. And mostly it's going to be recognize this and allow yourself to go through acclimatization. Now, this important point here is you don't want to ascend, go higher, while you are feeling this. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily the answer is to descend. Now, descending is, is always a good answer, and it's always it's the easy one to come to. But let's recognize, again, a lot of these are at resorts. People are taking, this is maybe their one week of vacation, one of two weeks they have the entire year. They paid a lot of money to be there. You don't want to send everybody down with acute mountain sickness. What you do want to do is recognize that the only way this is going to get better is for you to relax, take it easy, not go higher, and not exert yourself until you are symptom-free. 
And so recognize that, don't ascend. You do need to descend if you develop some of these other things we're talking about, but at this point we don't necessarily need to descend. Oxygen helps. It actually helps wonderfully, and in some cases what we would do in some of these clinics is we'd put you on oxygen, and if your symptoms totally resolved in, in 10 to 15 minutes, we had a diagnosis, essentially. So oxygen will help, and that makes sense, too, right? The, the core of this issue is a relative low oxygen level hypoxemia. And so oxygen is certainly part of this treatment. And then the way we would sometimes treat these patients as well is acetazolamide, which is... It, it, has a variety of, of effects, and, and, and long story short, um, it can act as a diuretic as well, but it, anywhere from 125 to 250, time, or 250 milligrams twice a day can be very effective, both in terms of treating it and, more importantly, preventing it. And we would start, some patients on that have had this before, we'd start on acetazolamide before they went up to altitude again. Dexamethasone is another, if you are, the thing about, issue about cetazolamide is there's a, if you're, if you're deathly allergic to sulfur, so if you've really had an anaphylactic reaction to sulfur drugs, you probably shouldn't take acetazolamide. It's a little bit like penicillin and, and the cephalosporins. The overlap, if, if you really have, have a, a near fatal response, that probably is important, and then you can go to dexamethasone, but there probably isn't as much concern about the allergies until you really have a very significant response to it. All right, so now we're getting into more serious issues. And this is high altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, which is truly a life-threatening emergency. Some people have called it end-stage acute mountain sickness. Other people have said, you know, alter mental status, AMS with AMS, meaning if you have alter mental status and acute mountain sickness, you have HACE until proven otherwise. So if you're altered in any way, it's a little bit like heat stroke. How do you make the definition of heat stroke? Is when you have altered mental status. And it's similar here. The difference between acute mountain sickness and haste, when you have to diagnose high altitude cerebral edema, is if they're altered, significantly altered, really altered in any way other than being a little grumpy. That's acute mountain sickness is grumpy. Altered, clearly different, is haste, or you're ataxic. Those are the two most sensitive ways or the most earliest ways we can sometimes make this diagnosis. Any clear neurologic symptom, you need to concern, be concerned about this, although isolated neurologic symptoms by themselves, you have to worry about stroke. So keep that in your differential. But altered mental status with acute mountain sickness or ataxia is haste. And it's really raised intracranial pressure. And the answer here is we need to treat it and we need to descend. So... Again, treatment is going to be descent once you've made a diagnosis of a life-threatening issue. If you're in a position where you can't do that, we're going to treat them with oxygen anyway, but now we're looking at the hyperbaric bag. So what we have a picture of there is called the Gano bags, which are, are portable hyperbaric chambers that are not the treatment of choice, but if you can't descend, this is a temporizing measure, and it's something that will help kind of a hyper-oxygenation that will help in these settings, at least until you can descend. Steroids are also part of the management. It is often associated with pulmonary edema, so look for that on your exam. And we've had some surprising saves, and some people that get really, really sick that have been surprising saves simply by descending. And as I talked about that, it's really an amazing phenomenon. They'll call me from these clinics and say, this patient is really sick, they're altered, I think I may need to intubate them. And then they send them down to me in a two-hour trip, and then by down to me, they're happy, they're smiling, and they're totally normal again. So it really does work to bring them down, even to 5,000 feet. So then HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema, and this is also a life-threatening emergency. 
probably the most lethal, and yet when recognized early, it's the most easily reversible of the bad high altitude injuries or illnesses. And the key errors that we make is we don't recognize this early enough or we misdiagnose it and they go out and they don't descend and God forbid they ascend further and exert themselves. And then you're asked, you've got high altitude pulmonary edema and you go higher, now you're truly risking death. So the risk factors for high altitude pulmonary edema are heavy exertion. We talked about how that happened. Rapid ascent, again, Mount McKinley is a big, a good example of this. Severe cold, and you know, when we're talking about 14,000 feet, it's cold. I mean, it's almost always cold up there, even in the summer. Uh, excessive salt ingestion is also a risk factor. Respiratory depressants, so going up to altitude, recognizing that you don't sleep well and taking a sleeping pill, not a good idea. Most sleeping pills, like alcohol, are respiratory depressants, not something you want to do in this setting. And then a history of high altitude illness, as we talked about. An underlying pulmonary hypertension, if you have that, it's not a good idea to go to altitude because that's going to be a risk for high altitude pulmonary edema. Clinical features, and this is where, again, it gets a little, it's a little tough. A dry cough can be your earliest sign. Decreased exercise performance and dyspnea on exertion is when we're starting now to progress to true pulmonary edema. But that di dry cough and decreased exercise performance is some cases just simply being at altitude. And you'll say, well, geez, I just walked up those stairs and it was, I'm out of breath. There's decreased exercise performance. And yet that can be your early sign of high altitude pulmonary edema. Now, if you get up to the top of stairs, you're out of breath, you get your breath back. I'm not suggesting that you now need to descend every single time. It is going to be normal for you to be out of breath just going upstairs. But it gets back to the whole exercise thing and recognizing that some of the earliest signs of this are when you're not exercising right, and when you're not exercising right at altitude, that can be normal as well. So err on the side of caution. If you notice that you don't have the same degree of exercise tolerance, that can be normal at altitude, but that's not the time to push yourself harder. Dyspnea on exertion, in other words, as soon as you start getting shortness of breath with less exertion than usual, start recognizing this as a possibility, and then dyspnea at rest is when you have developed now serious consequences of high altitude illness. Findings, you get some rails on exam with high altitude pulmonary edema, and then again, vital signs will change and these patients get really sick, but that's a late finding. And so where we were making our mistakes in Colorado was when we would get somebody who's coming in with a cough, they're short of breath, treat them with oxygen, get them feeling better. You don't recognize that this is a potential problem and send them back out. And at that point, they go back out, they start exerting themselves again, and then they can get in real trouble. And young people die of high altitude pulmonary edema. So treatment is, again, recognizing it early. It can be fatal if it's late. Immediate descent if you can, if you have that available to you. If you're in an austere environment and you can't do that and you have oxygen, that's good to apply. And if you can't do any of that, then minimizing exertion is your next priority. So carry them if you have to, or provide an environment where they have to do minimal exertion, because any exertion at this point is dangerous for them. Nifedipine has been used, but I want to emphasize there's actually a number of different medications that have been used for this. But we were seeing this, and I think if you look at the science, it's pretty clear. Most of the medications are temporizing measures at best. They might buy you a little bit of time. They certainly are not, have not been extensively studied, and they will not overcome the real definitive treatment, which is stop exertion, oxygen, and descent.
You're in that order, although in truth, dissent is your number one priority. So prevention, um, we talked about gradual ascent. Think about sleeping at more moderate altitudes if you can. Avoid overexertion, avoid alcohol early, and certainly respiratory depressants. And then it may make sense for some for prophylactic acetazolamide. Again, sometimes simple 125 milligrams or 250 milligrams twice a day would be all you would need, and it certainly can work. There have been patients that have had acute mountain sickness that now go back up to altitude and do fine. When you are rapid ascent to sleeping above 8,000 feet is also something that I would consider prophylactic acetazolamide for. And then dexamethasone is an alternative if you can't take acetazolamide, as we've talked about. Underlying disease, just a quick comment to finish up here. Asthma, it's not that you can't go to altitude asthma, but you do want to be careful. It's not time to forget your medications, and it's not time to truly exert yourself again early on. COPD, this, kind, this patient, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is not going to do well at altitude for, for understandable reasons, particularly if you have underlying pulmonary hypertension. Uh, bad coronary disease, it's not that this is really well studied, but it would make sense that hypoxia is not going to help that, certainly, and it can make it worse. I'm going to talk about sickle cell disease and pregnancy specifically. Um, pregnancy, there's certainly a higher incidence of complications for patients who, particularly those that are at altitude throughout their pregnancy. It is safe to go to moderate altitudes when you are pregnant, but staying at altitude for long periods of time increases your level of com uh, complications, and the higher you go, the bigger the risk is. And the other thing is you're also a long way away from help in many cases. So it's probably not the best decision, and we've had this, to be in your 40th week and up at 14,000 feet. There's a lot of bad things that can happen there that you're really limited in how to respond to. So once again, back to basic decision making, I will tell you the biggest problems we got into came down to extraordinary alcohol use when you shouldn't have done it, or decisions like that, where we've gone up at 40 weeks gestation in an already high-risk pregnancy that decided to climb 14,000 feet to see if they could get the pregnancy moving along. Common sense helps a lot with these things. I'm just saying. Sickle cell disease, there is clearly an increased incidence of vasoocclusive crisis in patients with sickle cell disease. Even at cabin pressure, so even at, at, in airplanes, they're at some risk for this. You treat with oxygen supplementation, sometimes you'll need pain medication to, to manage this as well. Their sickle cell trait is probably very safe, although there has been a pretty well-described increased incidence in, high, in splenic infarction with heavy exercise. So you see a common denominator here. Really heavy exertion at altitude is probably something to avoid. It's certainly until you've had a chance to acclimate. And, but this is the one issue of sickle cell trait. Overall, if you have sickle cell disease that is very sensitive, altitude is not going to be very, help, uh, very helpful for you and probably something to avoid. Sickle cell trait is pretty safe, but you do have a little bit of a problem with exertion. So in summary, gradually ascend is the best approach. Allow yourself to acclimate to the environment. Recognize early for high altitude pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema. Descend when possible, certainly once you've developed either of those two entities, which are true life-threatening issues, you really do need to, to descend. And let's make good decisions, because a lot of this is related to decision-making. Thank you very much for your attention. I hope this was valuable. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.